There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. David Allen. Yeah, I, Deadwood, South Dakota. Yeah. You never meet anybody from Deadwood. <laughs> yeah, not many of us escape. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So nice little western town it was when I grew up there. And now, like nowadays, you are the president and CEO, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Everybody's heard of Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, but just like give me a um, give me the one uh, you know the one liner, RMEF. What's it? Like? Well, RMEF is a uh, wildlife conservation slash land trust. I think is the simplest one-liner that there is we're uh we're the largest big game organization but that's not just our focus our focus is really habitat um and that has been for a long time as well as uh you know the animals the critters and uh the hunting culture that sustains it when you say land organization break down what that means no you know what hold, hold that thought so that's what rmef does but i want to back up Deadwood, South Dakota. Mm-hmm. And then you worked for a long time. Like you came out of both NASCAR <laughs> and it's like, uh, and rodeo. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I had a real strange trail to the, uh, to the Elk Foundation. Um, I ended up working for Dale Earnhardt Sr. Uh, when I went to Wrangler Jeans. I went to Wrangler Jeans in 1980 
And uh, they doing what? Uh, marketing their rodeo program at the time. That's what I was hired to do. And you originally. probably grew up wearing Wrangler jeans. I grew up wearing Lee, but th- yeah, I was in Wrangler pretty, <laughs> pretty quick. <laughs> um, but Wrangler signed Dale. That was Dale's first major sponsor, and so that's how he and I. What year was that? No, nah, nineteen eighty. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, late eighty. What year did he die? Uh, February eighteen, two thousand one. Got that memorized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a long day. Uh, so you started working for him in 1980. Well, I was working with him oh, and, and with for him. him, but you know, you didn't. You did work for him. That's the way he was. I mean, he um, he just had that kind of bigger than life personality, and and uh, he was awesome. Was he uh, successful then? That early? No, no. No, he had bounced around. He had dropped out of school. Um, he raced on the weekends to try and make it. And, you know, he made it and and lost it several times. Um, then in 1980, he did have a, 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 a land developer out of California named Rod Osterlin um, came out and bought and owned about four NASCAR teams. And in those days, you could own four for about a million dollars total. And uh, what, what, What's it now? I don't, I don't uh, know enough to know that. Oh, uh, it costs about 20 to 25 million a year to race oh, okay. now. Right. So you, I don't know what you could buy one for. So, you know, 100 million maybe, I don't know. Um, but Dale ended up, driving for Rod Osterlin in 1980 as one of the four drivers that he had. And uh, Dale had great raw talent. And uh, he was Rookie of the Year for NASCAR. And uh, so things looked like they were finally going to start taking off for him and, you know, have a, uh, a great career. And Wrangler picked him up in 1981. And, man, he was miserable for... About three years, he wrecked everything he drove, but you know, and he started getting the reputation of this guy can't drive; he's just a maniac and blah blah blah. Well, his whole philosophy was, they call this a race for a reason. I'm here to race, and so if you can put equipment under me that'll go, I can go. I can I can race it, and that was his whole lifestyle and his whole mentality. So when he finally got with Richard Childress as his car owner, and Richard, being a former driver, had a better understanding of what it, what Dale needed, they clicked. And, I mean, from there, it was like he was the Michael Jordan of the deal for, well, 15 years or more. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, he was, he was the man. And so it really worked for him. And he, I was he, just he liked to hunt elk. Hmm? Didn't he do some? He elk hunted hunting? elk a lot. Yeah. He and Richard, uh, he hunted with George Strait a lot. Um, they hunted White Mountain in the eighties when it was just still undiscovered. And then uh, they hunted. A lot of people Mexico. probably won't know what that, what White Mountain well, is. White, yeah, White Mountain is the Apache reservation in uh, what it would be north eastern corner of arizona uh probably the most famous for giant elk and Mm -hmm. and i've been there uh i haven't been fortunate enough to hunt it but i've taken 
some people hunting there. It is unbelievable. It really? Just, yeah. For oh. a long time, the world record elk came from there. Yeah, and right? you look in the record books, there's going to be several that are in the, the top. I mean, it's just... And, and the way they managed elk over the last 35 years, I mean, nothing but six-by-sixes lived. Everything else, boom, out of here. I mean, literally, get them out. <laughs> and uh, they just kept at it and kept at it, and, and uh, it, it's quite the story. But, yeah, Dale but It's a, it's a high-roller hunt, though. Oh, yeah, it's 22,000 a man, Yeah, uh, whether you pull the trigger or not. Okay. And what do, you, what do you think it was, just for comparison's sake, in the 80s when yeah i don't uh, i bet it was 13 well, I yeah, mean, oh, boy, yeah. it was of, it was yeah. a high dollar it always has been a high dollar thing so yeah yeah and incredible elk but yeah dale loved to hunt he hunted deer everywhere um what uh, state was he out of north carolina okay yeah he so was he, from charlotte area uh Kannapolis, north carolina is his hometown so you you worked for Wrangler and kind of like managed that part of the relationship. At that time I did, and then when Wrangler got sold to Vanity Fair in uh, whatever year it was, uh, 88 or 89, I went with Dale and Richard, and we started one of the first in-house marketing uh, groups to market the race teams, which, you know, they, every team does it now, but none of them did it then. So we, we managed all of our own sponsorships and everything that was related to the sponsorship. Because sponsorship drives that sport. And that's what it's all about. That's where the money comes from. Oh, yeah. 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 So we started that marketing uh, venture, and uh, I did it until he died and actually i did it a few years after that and then sold it and got out had you guys become personal friends oh yeah very much so yeah i've known dale jr since he was five years old and kelly his sister and carrie his brother and yeah yeah it was it was a personal thing very much so yeah yeah and then uh you got into went into rodeo well, I was actually in the rodeo stuff with the PRCA, the Pro Rodeo Cowboys, before that. I went from PRCA to Wrangler. So that was the chain of events. Of I quit college. My mother still hasn't forgiven me. And uh, went to work for the PRCA. And uh, then, then went to Wrangler from there. You never went back and finished college? Never went back. No, I regret it. Now I got... Why do you regret it now? Well, just you didn't finish. You did start something, finish it. Well, here yeah, I no, am. I got, I, I got one in college and one going to be there next year. And I'm telling them now, you got to get through that. You got to do this. And it's like, well, Dad, you didn't. It's like, well, yeah, I didn't. But yeah, well, there's a generational thing, oh, man. Yeah. I got lucky too. I wouldn't want to try it again. Yeah, you know, I, I just don't. And we've preached to our kids. From day one, you start something, you finish it. You know, yeah. you go out for basketball, you don't like it. Well, you can quit at the end of the season, but you're going to play through yeah. this year. Otherwise, don't raise your hand and don't go out. You know, yeah, my, my old man, he um, he never finished high school just because he enlisted, fighting a war, and then just later, I think he went and got a GED later. But he pounded like he he was he was like it's he was. He, he recognized by then, by the time his kids were older, he recognized that college was something you need to yeah. get on board with. Yeah. But 
yeah, it wouldn't have been fair to be like, well, you didn't do it. It's yeah. a very different world, man. Oh, completely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up, I graduated high school in 1969, so my junior high and high school years were the vietnam mm-hmm. stuff and so yeah it was a whole different world it was it was pretty goofy so uh back so when dale died i call him dale mm-hmm. dale earnhardt died <laughs> you got you worked your way back into rodeo no when dale died i mean it 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 really hit me uh personally and i think what hit me the most after the initial shock was here's a guy who had everything and he had a lot of money he had a lot of fame he had everything and it didn't buy him one extra hour yeah and i had a two-year-old and a four-year-old boy and i told my wife we need to go back home and raise these kids around their grandparents and i don't know what that means i don't know what it looks like but yeah like an awakening yeah, well, yeah, yeah, it was. And I really lost um, some passion for racing. I mean, it just took the kind of the air out of my sail for sure. I know it did Richard, too, because there was a time when I thought Richard was going to hang it up, but he didn't. Uh-huh. he didn't. But anyway, so I we moved back to Montana. I still had my racing ties and whatnot, but I was trying to evolve out of that. And the whole time... I was really trying to find something in the outdoors that I could do. And uh, I talked to Cabela's, almost took a job at Cabela's. Um, I talked to, you know, guys at Realtree. I've known Bill since he started the company. And I talked to a lot of different companies. And I was like, I was looking. And uh, I was on the board of the Elk Foundation when they had... uh, issues with their previous CEO and um, so some of the board approached me and said have you thought about applying for this position and I hadn't I didn't even dawn on me and uh, then my wife and I talked about it and I was like well why not you know something I like something I care about and so long story short I did and that's where I ended up and uh, that was 10 years ago when you were a kid, did they have it. Uh, were there? Uh, what was the elk situation where you grew up? There weren't any. My uh, my dad and I'll never forget because we hunted whitetail in the Black Hills. That's what you hunted at the time, and a lot of them. We hunted on an area that was up very close to the Wyoming South Dakota border mm-hmm. around Newcastle, and uh, one morning, one real. I'll never forget this. Burned in my memory. Uh, we're walking in one of those stone quiet mornings, you know, or fresh snow, and it was the sun was coming up. It was just beautiful. And my dad stopped and he pointed, you know, and points at something ahead of us. And I look up there. I thought it was a donkey or a horse, and it was a cow elk. I'd never seen an elk in my life. That was your first elk. Yeah, that was the first elk I'd ever seen. You know, we couldn't hunt them. They weren't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there was one there, and and. Uh, but, you know, I, I didn't even hunt elk until, oh, I don't know, I was probably in my late 30s because I just wasn't around them and hadn't, uh, I'd hunted everything else, but uh, I didn't know anything about them at the time, and, and um, it was pretty cool. 
So where that one you saw, how did it? Where was it coming from? You know, I, I don't know. It had to have come out of uh, somewhere out of the Wyoming side of the Black Hills. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it had wandered in there on its own. Yeah. It, well, that's the only one we saw. I yeah. know there probably were more, but there sure weren't very many. Yeah. But that's the only one I'd ever seen, and and I was I'll never forget it. It was so cool to see it. You know, my the way I get, like, my little glimpses kind of, like, into your head and, and, and what you do is I always read your column. Okay. That comes out in Bugle. Yeah. Um, well, Bugle, is it six times a year? Yeah, yeah, every other month. Yeah, so the Elder <coughs> Foundation, Rocky Mountain Elder Foundation, publishes a, a magazine, Bugle, um, which really does a good job of breaking down in, in an in a epic scale like a national scale, sort of like what's up with elk and many other wildlife issues, predator management, um, in a pretty digestible format. And this thing comes out every couple months. And you guys write a column. Right. Um, I have help, but yeah. You do? Yeah, well, it's a good yeah. column. I, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I have guys help me sometimes with wordsmithing or something maybe, but... You know, I pick and choose the subjects, and and I try to input as much of mine, and then let them tweak on it, and then I'll look at it again. It's a, it's an effort. It's yeah, no, I can, I can imagine. It's yeah. good. It's yeah. like it's very well written, man. Well, and I'd have to be honest, uh, Dan Crockett, who's our editor. I know Dan. Yeah, yeah uh, Dan is awesome at that. I mean, that's his wheelhouse. And um, uh, he makes me look a lot better than I am, for sure, I got in that column. Yeah. But, I mean, we, we go back and forth, and it, it, it's a... I don't let anything go in there that I wouldn't stand up for or anything, so... Yeah. You kind of offer in it... What I like is you kind of... Um, you probably don't, you probably don't think about it this way, but there's sort of like like kind of prophecies I see in there now and then. Like I you, try. There's like you so want, Like you 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 are always looking a little bit ahead to where things are headed. Well, you know, I yeah, I I appreciate that you recognize that because I think that's probably more of what drives my passion for this job than anything. Again, through the eyes of my two boys that um, have grown up outside and. And their buddies and and all that. Uh, that's I think more my focus, long term focus than anything is what are they going to have and what's this going to be? Uh, yeah, twenty five years, fifty years from now. I mean, I'll finish out. You know, and it won't be a whole lot of difference. But what are they going to have? And uh, it shudders me to think sometimes what they might not have and uh, i i hate to think about it but yeah but you guys it's worth fighting for no you do like i said you make you have some prophecies in there where you you anticipate and i know now from personal experience that you anticipate problems that are going to hit the culture of hunting before they do I try to push some buttons once well, in a while <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even know if I, <laughs> I, I there's a thing that happened let me see your pen and I'm going to write down something, and you tell me if I can talk about it or not. Oh, okay. <laughs> You one day, over a year ago, mentioned this to me before. Oh, oh, yeah. You, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can I talk about that? Uh, I don't care. Okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> so yeah, I'm sitting in Dave Allen's office. I believe I was in your office. Yeah, I remember the now. I know. What and you, you were yeah. kind of rattling off some potential trouble spots for hunting. <laughs> and you mentioned, uh, and you said, and now you got people hunting with spears. <laughs> yeah, and this was and then, before that thing. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was funny because the minute that happened, and sort of the way that was framed, and the way it was not just perceived but portrayed um i immediately thought of you <laughs> that you'd pull that out of thin air as a thing that you're like it's just not gonna go well well and and yeah it obviously didn't um <laughs> but i think here's here's where it really didn't go well is somebody took the time to record that edit it and put it out in the public and that made it that magnified it what oh yeah a hundred times so uh i don't know as i really have a a personal issue with hunting with spears or not although that's probably not what i would teach my kids yeah well i know that a lot of states legally but it, if, yeah yeah if it's legal then you know i'm not above the law and all that so okay but uh, you know, it's the old saying. I had a, we had a football coach that used to tell us when you act like a jackass and stuff. It's like act like you've been here, yeah. you know. And so that's to me where that whole issue really got in trouble was they took it out and said, "Look, everybody, look at this." And it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> you want us to watch that? Yeah, outside of like kind of like meaningful context, well, meaningful just go, dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 and I don't want to point this out like you weren't in any way saying, oh, it should be illegal. No, I just remember, no, I just remember no. you throwing off off the top of your head right. a thing that, and even, and it's funny about it, is because even when you said it, I remember thinking, what the hell, why, like, why that? And it was then later when it became that it's like when put in the public, when, when put out, to the public, the way people yeah. had such a visceral reaction to it, it um it made me. I remember thinking like I'm gonna when David Allen talks, <laughs> I'm gonna listen. <laughs> what what happened? What was it that tipped you off, David, to that? Or well, just or I just, mean, I think just common sense of. I mean, you just read somewhere that it was just now this thing, or you had well, heard I mean, someone it was, doing it. As Steve said, it was starting to become legalized in some states, and I'm like. Really? Oh. There's a big demand for that? I mean, what is I guess that? I, I didn't know that it was illegal. It, in some places, it depends how carefully a state spells out method to take. I think so, yeah. Gotcha. So if, if you like, like Alaska, um, not, you know, it, it's, you're not looking for what it says you can do. When it comes to method to take, you're usually looking at what it says you cannot do. Of course, that's not the case. Like with waterfowl, um, it's spelled out in, yeah. in, in like excruciating detail, yeah. like what ammo the and minimum, everything yeah, else. Yeah. The minimum uh, di- bore diameter, maximum bore diameters. Sure. The, what, what your shot's made of, like all this stuff spelled out, right? But in some things, um, if you look, it's not saying like spears are great, but you look and say like legal method to take and it's like no I artificial mean, lights uh, or whatever and you kind of read between the lines. Just the other day, I was trying to figure out for um, where I grew up in Michigan, you cannot hunt bullfrogs with artificial light. So I was checking in Washington what the bullfrog rules were, and there's no mention of artificial light. So you go like, okay, you can use artificial light because it doesn't say not to. So I think now what you're going to find is you'll probably wind up seeing that if that's become a thing that has demand, you'll see 
state agencies spell out that you cannot do it. And I think that the argument against it is going to wind up being, from a manager's perspective, it's going to want to be an efficacy. Yeah. Like, is there a reasonable amount of efficacy or is there, is there like a higher than normal likelihood that you're going to, that you're going to injure and lose animals? Well, I can't imagine, for example, me out there calling in a bull and throwing a spear. Hurl I just, a spear to see yeah. what happens. Yeah. Um, he even said he can't believe it. Oh, yeah. I, I'm so sure. So it's like, why, when, you, when, when I touch the trigger, I don't go like, I can't believe I got it. When I touch the trigger, the, that's the expectation. <laughs> right, right. Like, I'm pulling the trigger because I have On a purpose. 99% yeah. <laughs> certainty that this thing will die upon that action. Yeah. So that's telling me that it's time now to touch it. But if you're like, throwing out a Hail Mary and then you're like so shocked that it worked as opposed to that you just hit it in the leg and gashed it and it ran off. Yeah, and again, I don't know that husband and wife, those those people at all and and I don't have any animosity or issue with them but uh, if I were talking to them, I'd say, well, what did you think was going to happen when you filmed it? You must have edited it, and then you <laughs> put it out. So you had plenty of time to think of, you know what, maybe maybe the next one will show. Maybe not this one, or you know, maybe yeah. I'll get better at it first or something. And I'm with you. And I, and I don't even want to put you on the spot No, about no, that. but I think it gets to the bigger question of where's your respect level for the culture? Yeah, they should I mean, there should be a a beat, and you think, is this our best foot forward? Yeah, is this good? Yeah, right. So there's a lot of things. I won't include any of you here, but there's a lot of things that I do that are legal that I'm not filming and putting up on the internet for everyone to judge. (laughs) Because I don't think it would be my best foot forward. It was legal. Oh, yeah, in my, let's see. You mean in your personal life? Yes. Well, even in my hunting life, I've hunted 52 years now, or 53. I can assure you not every one of my kills was perfect. The absolute perfect, you know, fell over dead. And and, um, I didn't feel good about a lot of them, but I didn't have them on TV either, so... Yeah, you weren't holding it out as, this Uh, is what it's all about. Yeah, uh, no, and I learned from them. Rourke, you cool on everything right now? Yeah. Just quietly listening. Yeah. I like that. Interesting um, I'll come in when it's appropriate. This is um, what it's all about, comment. No, the thing, you know, the thing that, that Dave said that did resonate was, you know, on Dale's passing is, is you know, serve, and it's interesting to have this entire generation of people that have lost, you know, buddies and friends, close friends. You mean some, people in your own military world? Yeah, and yeah. some of us, a, a lot of friends, and, and how much it does retool your life and make you oh, think about huge. what's important and what, what you want to be doing with your time and how you're going to pursue that stuff. I, I mean, it's tell. very, very, very eye-opening. I, mean, I don't wish it on people, but it's oh. a powerful, powerful moment in your life when you say, you know what? None of this is promised, so you've got to make the most yeah, of it. Yeah, lo- when I lost a, a, a close friend a couple of years ago, uh, the the uh, clarity it gives you, um, mm. but it's hard to hang on to that clarity. Yep. You go right back to like being mad that your kids left their clothes laying all over and didn't put them in the clothing bin. Do you know what I mean? And you go like, sure. well, wait a minute. I had such clarity yeah. <laughs> a month ago about like what the meaning of life is. And here I am like yelling at a two-year-old or, you know, about yeah. like why, why is you like, why are you like purposely dumping your milk out? 
Yeah. Yeah. And then you just, you lo- like, it's when you get those crystal moments, they just, they, they fade, man, you know? I'll tell you the one thing that, and I purposely have done it since that day, is I've never been afraid to tell somebody I love them because you do, you know. Because you had. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and I do that. I, I mean, I obviously tell my wife and my kids that, but, I mean, grown friends of mine, uh, you know, double tough cowboys or whatever, yeah, yeah. I am not one bit ashamed or afraid to say it. I've done the same. And, I think I've freaked out somebody. Seals do that with each other all the time. They'll say it because it's like, there's a real good chance this is the last time I'm talking. They're living on that line yep. every day, yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll say it to I said it to a buddy the other day. I could tell I took him sideways a little bit. <laughs> he was good with him, but he was kind of like, what? <laughs> He's like, do, 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 yeah, do you know yeah. something I don't? Yeah, no. <laughs> it, gave, it gave a little pause. I've seen your cat scans, buddy. I love you. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so... Uh, back to Bugle, because there's a couple things I wanted to ask you about. When I was reading the most recent Bugle, you guys were celebrating some some milestones in there. One, in terms of land conservation. And two, you had a wrap-up of of what's going on with Eastern Elk. Mm-hmm. Kind of you guys work with Eastern Elk and what the picture with Eastern Elk right. is. A couple things struck me. Um, is it true? Like, is this a fair statement? Elk right now only occupy about was it fourteen or tw- like fourteen or twenty percent of their range yeah. at the time of European contact. That's probably true. Um, so they're eighty some ninety percent absent from where they were when Columbus landed in the West Indies. Yeah, I don't know the exact percentage, but I. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I knew it was something like that, but they were showing outside of a couple states in the Northeast. Yeah. Yeah. Across the whole damn country. The lower 48, uh, including Florida, um, there's records of elk in Florida from time to time, except, yeah, one or two states in the New England area. Yeah. Um, Like Maine. Yeah. And you would think they'd be up there, but elk were a plains animal you know, all that time. They weren't in the mountains. And, uh, you know, there's, yeah, I've heard the number of, there was 10 million elk roaming, and I don't know how they knew that for sure, but it, there was an estimate that, you know, there was large, large numbers of elk. And, uh, yeah, that's probably very accurate given the amount of space that they occupy today. Their once native range is some groups like to talk about like vastly like because you th- you look at them and you think like oh this, i mean and they are very like where they where we have them tend to be very abundant but like yeah the east you should not if you live in the east you should not really think of like the west as elk country you should, think, you should think of like you live in elk country oh yeah very much so and they're doing really well in areas that they've been uh either reintroduced or later have dispersed into. Kentucky is the most uh, uh, shining example that I can think of. The elk were moved from Utah to Kentucky, I think is about 15 or 17 years ago. And they got 10,000 now. Well, they're fudging on their numbers. They got more than that. And that's what I heard about it when I say that. Yeah. <laughs> I would have had to I would have had to written that down in your notebook. Yeah. <laughs> I've I I tease their director about it and and he laughs too. But yeah, they have somewhere probably between twelve and fifteen thousand head of elk. They're the number nine elk state in the country now. 
It's no incredible. Kid. Yeah. Number nine in the country. Yeah. And what's even, uh, I think, more rewarding about it is that they were released and they still principally habitate on reclaimed coal mine property. Yeah. So here you have a win-win for conservation. You're bringing a species back, but you're reclaiming that ground, and it's an even better ground today than it was Ugh. yeah when you talk ago. about like so that's when they take that, that mountaintop coal mining right and they went right. in when they did the remediation yeah they put in i mean what looks like like the grasslands they did they put in native grasses and whatnot yeah and, and it's it's these elk are just thriving there's some giant elk well i think you hunted yeah Kentucky, hunted Kentucky, didn't yeah. yeah and if you read like if you read about uh accounts from like daniel boone's day Simon yeah, Kent, yeah. those guys hunted elk. Oh yeah, in Kentucky, they hunted elk in Tennessee. Yeah, like their dads had hunted elk earlier in Pennsylvania, Virginia. Yeah, yep. they were always killing them, and, well, I, they and, and like they were, and I know that they would uh, criticize them too because the hides were a little bit too heavy for workwear. Yeah, so when they probably. were hunting, they liked to kill whitetails because they'd sell that sure. because that leather was good for. Basically, like Carhartts back in the day were made yeah, out of buckskin. Right. And right. they wanted to kill whitetails in the summer. Yeah. And the elk's hide was a little too heavy and wasn't as valuable. They'd use it for harness material and shit, but it wasn't as valuable for apparel. So they liked the whitetails. But they'd be wading through. There's an account of one of those guys that rolls into what's now Nashville, Tennessee, and, and makes the estimate that there was 10,000 bison in the area. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the bison and were all over the uh, lower 48 as well. Yeah. So, I mean, this this place was a whole different world before man got here. So. But it really, like, yeah, it really kind of, like, fudges your understanding of it. Because, like, when I was growing up in Michigan, um, yeah, when you thought of elk, you didn't think, oh, yeah, right here. Yeah. You always pictured, like, an elsewhere thing. Colorado and, and Montana. Within that thing, though, you guys had... Uh, this is something I hope you get some clarity on because you guys were doing a state-by-state state roundup of, I think there's now nine nine states east of the, like east of the Mississippi. There's actually 11. 11 states that mm-hmm. have. Rattle, you got if yeah, you got yep, it right there, yep, rattle them yeah. off. Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Missouri, North Carolina, Virginia, and the last one is uh, West Virginia just came on. Just came out with yeah, having elk. Yeah, they're just just starting to move elk now from Kentucky into West Virginia. And in this in this wrap up of these states, you guys had uh, notes about when elk vanished. How like how well is that known? You know, I that I don't know uh, the accuracy of. I think they're going by a lot of anecdotal, and you know. Um, uh, oh, what do you want to call it? Um, journals that have been passed down and those yep. kinds of things. Because, I mean, there were no game agencies. So, yeah. you know, who knew for sure? Uh, so I don't know how you would really verify it other than the anecdotal and stories that have been passed yep. down and passed down. And, it's like the last some guy and then he never heard of another one. And yeah. So yeah. he kind of goes as the guy that got the last one. Yeah, yeah. And... um at the time of uh, Teddy Roosevelt, they were uh, the estimates were the elk population in the whole continental U.S. was uh, less than a hundred thousand. So 
there still were some, but I mean, not a lot. And and of course, today we there's somewhere around about a million and a half, probably. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. This show is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stressors big ones little ones when you keep these things bottled up it can start to affect you in a very negative way well therapy is a great space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down like figure it out that means figure it out with someone who's impartial who's able to sit down and hear what you have to say and think it through with you if you're thinking of starting therapy give better help a try it's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, there's no there's no such thing. It's like, you're not so tough. You're not so tough that it doesn't do you some good to talk to somebody now and then about what's on your mind, okay? Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash eater today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash meat eater. What's the primary, what's the impediment to having elk everywhere they used to be? Oh, man. 
I mean, uh, in short, like is it is it uh, is it uh, available habitat more, sure. or is it public will? No, I w- I would say it would be available habitat. Uh, um, I mean, I get in. You might find this hard to believe, but I get in debates with the pro wolf people every once in a while, yeah. and you know they'll say, "Well, wolves are not in there." They're only in 2% of their once native range and whatnot, and whatever the percentage is. And I'll, I'll agree with that. That's probably true, but same for elk. And I always jokingly say to them, there's no elk in Iowa. Yeah. So, but take Iowa, for example. There's not a lot of national forest or wilderness area or just public ground. There's, it's all, it's either populated or it's farm ground mm-hmm. so where where are you going to put them where where are they going to live and not get into and not get trouble. into trouble and and elk are kind of a pain in the rear for landowners I mean, they are and that, that i just wanted to ask on you know west virginia i mean or any of the states on that list, really. I mean, it's been a long time since Over 100 seen years, elk, right? some of them 150 years. And so yeah. was there some real pushback out of the gate? For, sure. Because there's a lot of small farmers, well, a lot of small yeah. small yeah. ranches. That's, that's the biggest hurdle. And when you say real pushback, I wouldn't say it's, it's certainly not uh, like the pushback on grizzlies or wolves or something like that where it's a huge debate but um there's there's it's not a hundred percent uh support and we don't do it unless the state agency and the state itself have taken uh x number of steps and the first step is they have to develop a bona fide biological elk management plan and then that plan has to be accepted by the agency and by their legislature. I mean, it has to be approved and everybody signed off. We don't have the authority sure. in the first place. And we don't have the desire or will to come shove it down their throat if there isn't that uh, will to accept it. We're not going to do it. Um, we'll help gladly if there's a, a lot of support for it. Um, but in, the, in those processes and in those public comment periods and whatnot, uh, it'll be the farm community that has, and a lot of times it isn't like, oh, hell no, we don't want that. But they have issues, and they're like, well, now what's going to happen if, and what about this, and you know, some of it can be mitigated by where these elk are located because they're not great big herds in a lot of cases. Missouri was just like that. The Missouri Farm Bureau really didn't want them. And uh, once it was identified the area where these elk were going to be released and it was going to be like 50 or 60 head, I mean, it wasn't a large um, then that kind of diminished some of the resistance and it ended up happening. And it takes a long time for 50 head to explode. And we have game management knowledge and wisdom. We can manage those numbers and keep it at whatever kind of population you want 
to some degree. That's one of the things that was explained to me about why it works so well in Kentucky. It's because you had it's that southeast portion yeah. of Kentucky that was coming out of a long history of coal mining, was kind of being like underutilized by wildlife, and you didn't have a big agricultural presence there. Right. That's right. And then in a very short number of years, it turned into uh, a, a great contributor to their economy. I mean, not just the hunting, uh, but people coming from, you know, neighboring states would come up there during the elk rut, and they want to observe and hear them and see them. And, you know, it was economy. It was tourism. And, and uh, now, I don't know how many thousands of people put in for those. I think maybe, what do they have, 500 tags? Or it's a limited number of tags, yeah. whatever it is. And uh, they have like a lottery system and whatnot, but it generates... And their lottery system is like winning the lottery. Oh, yeah. And it generates a lot of money for the state. <clears throat> yeah, it's an area that's economically depressed. Yes, yeah. yes. But they make oh. it available to everybody. You know, some of the Western states where you have to uh, uh, buy a $150 yeah. license and then you can, you know, right. apply for, right. you know, to win a tag. There, I think it's just straight $15. Yeah, the I last time I yeah, applied, it was I think 15 you're right. bucks. Yeah. I think, and it's like you said, anybody, I, mm-hmm. you and I, any of us can just go, uh, and I don't know if you can buy, I think it is like a, just a real lottery. Can you buy more than one entry? I don't think so. No, just one. Yeah. I, I haven't done it, but if, cause if I won, it would look rigged. So yeah. I can't, <laughs> there's no way. You're probably really limited in your hunting. Oh, I, cause you got yeah. people looking at you all the time. Yeah. I, I get offers to hunt all kinds of stuff and i'm just like man i'd love to but it, i wouldn't even pull the trigger and the rumor mill would be yeah. so i just can't do it yeah well steve has a helicopter that we just fly <laughs> i was just right told that i fly on a, i was i had a guy point out to me how i fly in a helicopter for all my hunts which I thought was odd since oh. I've never been in a helicopter. Well, you got to be ever. a pretty good shooter to do that. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. I couldn't pull yeah. that kind of thing off. <laughs> I've recently started describing you and folks, I ask, as I'm like, you know, Steve has, likes to do things the hard way, and now I feel like he's just getting worse and worse in preparation for any sort of criticism, future argument. <laughs> be like, oh, yeah? Well, let me tell you how we do things. Yeah. Go on low success hunts. Um, did I make this up? Do auto insurers, do auto insurance companies resist elk reintroduction? Yes, yes. <laughs> that always cracks yeah, me up, man. Yeah, they do. Um, that was another issue I remember specifically in Missouri is, you know, they would talk about, well, how many of them are going to be hit on the highway? And, you know, they just come out with, whatever they throw it at the wall and see and yeah i wouldn't want to hit an elk with a car i no question but when you're only putting out less than a hundred head the the chances are so small and um yeah but it's just there's inherent risk with being alive oh yeah right exactly i just feel that when it comes to wildlife issues if we weren't willing to make some sacrifices right we would be where we were in 1900. We don't have any. Well, and most of these people are coming out of the metro area of some city, and they probably have more risk 
in their daily lives of something happening to them than you know, out in the country driving oh, along and hitting no question an elk. About it. But people get hysterical when it comes to animals. Oh boy, <laughs> tell me. Yeah, it's, but it's like I just feel like yes, some things are inconvenient. It happens. Elk. Well, kids, I can tell you that are real inconvenient. But people sure have those, man, you know? Oh, yeah. But, yeah, I heard that about the auto. But, I mean, but you're never going to. How many deer does Kentucky have? Oh, How many yeah. whitetails? Oh, Lord, who knows? Look at, uh, look at Connecticut and the whitetail issues they have. Yeah. Well, I mean, their auto insurance rates are through the roof. Because be- of deer car Because collisions. of deer. In Greenwich and areas like that that are north of the city. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Well, I think they're going to fix that because they're going to tranquilize them all and then sterilize them. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that'll work. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Until the next generation. Yeah, right. What are some of the other common fears, I guess, from like a farm bureau of why they would not want to have it? Well, there's crop damage. I mean, I've seen what elk can do to a haystack. It's they're They tear it apart in the winter you know if a big enough group of elk come in and camp on your haystack oh yeah they could rip fences out no problem oh they tear down fences there you know if they get run through a fence it will get knocked down for sure um i've seen what elk will do in cornfields and they love to live in a cornfield i i know They'll move a, in i know a ranch in eastern montana right on the yellowstone river and when this guy's corn, he's got about 800, maybe 1,000 acres of corn. And when his corn gets about shoulder high, those elk move in and they stay there till he cuts it. And I mean, they literally get move over to the next row as he's cutting it. And is, they wait no till the shit, very last really? row. Oh, and I mean giant bulls. There's some 380 kind of. <laughs> They're just bedding in there? They can never see anything? No, they can't. You, I've walked in there a couple times, and, and then you'll walk in on their trails, which are completely trampled down, probably two rows of corn, just all mashed down. And you'll find an area in the middle of it where it'll be a circle that might be 50 yards in diameter and that's where they've been living and laying and then you know and they pooped in there everywhere and, and they, they're rutting in there they, they oh yeah and they live in there from <laughs> end of june till middle of september yeah you drive by and never know oh you would never know they're in there i mean you could you yeah never know they're and they are giant because they're eating corn all summer long feedlot elk and yeah literally <laughs> yeah industrial farm yeah, elk, literally right? and they go over to the yellowstone which is about a hundred yards away in water and go right back in there and and i i would say this group of elk is probably 50 or 60 what's then, his relationship to him does he like him or not like him <clears throat> well it's frustrating for him, but he has uh, leased his whole ranch out to an outfitter for hunting, so he's making it. Got you. Uh, he's recovered some yeah, loss. Yeah, yeah, and so in that case, I get it, and and uh, and I think he ends up killing a good elk every year himself, yeah. probably right off the corn harvester i don't know but i'm not accusing him of that i don't know i haven't been there (laughs) Um, so if to get back to these eastern the the eastern states if if a state jumps through the 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 hurdles that you want them to yeah where you guys where the elk foundation is saying 
you got to be serious about this. Yep. This needs to be like very transparent, right? Yeah. Well, the process, yeah, the management plan's got to be in place. Yep. So what do you got? Like, what do you guys have to do with it? Well, then they'll funding is the biggest issue. That's their hurdle. That's usually the big hurdle is funding. Of course, is, is, if you had to rate the hurdles, uh, being like public meaning business pushback, business of ag, mm-hmm. business of mm-hmm. auto insurance, like that hurdle or just the money? Funding is not that hard. Okay. It really isn't because uh, our volunteers who are in those areas, you know, uh, well, Kentucky, our volunteers there went nuts. It was like, wow, we're going to bring elk out here and all oh, this is going to, I mean, you want to talk about some motivated volunteers and they're getting out beating on doors going, hey, we need some money. We need you to donate when this is for our backyard. And these are guys, because I met a lot of these, the, the big volunteers on there. These are guys who will, who will never hunt one of those elk. May not, may very well not, yeah. The, odds are, the odds are against them. Yeah, very much against them, right. But, but it's, not, it's, it's something, it's like not really altruistic because it's always the thing you hear like oh you guys uh conservation groups you just want more ducks so you can kill more ducks right and be like tell that to a kentucky elk volunteer right. some bitch ain't gonna right. kill elk no <laughs> no <laughs> no the odds of him getting him or her getting drawn but so the money is usually not that big a challenge for us uh-huh. and we're fortunate enough now where we have an endowment that we can help match those funds and so we have a lot of ways to skin that cat what's it cost though like to put it to put a elk on the ground oh well you have to be uh there has to be a faci- a holding facility at both ends um because they have to be quarantined you got cwd and all this other stuff so it's chronic wasting disease yeah and so the elk, wherever they're coming from, have to be in a facility for, you know, probably 120 days or better. And they're tested and, you know, drawn blood and everything else. And, and, and these are wild captured elk. Oh, yeah, yeah. What, what they do is they have this facility that's a great big type of enclosure where you might open up gates and... Um, you'll put out feed or whatever, and elk will start coming in there to feed and whatnot, and at some point in time, you'll shut the gates. Oh, that's how they catch them. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got them in the big area, and now you've got to get them into the smaller area, and so they... And that's move. a gradual process yes. to keep from getting stressed. Yeah. And, and then what, right. what is the optimal, minimal number to start, start the herd? Um, usually, they will move at one time... 25 to 30 of them or so at a time like the the uh, kentucky thing the elk came from utah that was two or three shipments of elk okay and it's a whole interesting process because when those elk and they load them on like cattle carriers type things but when and a lot of times they're padded and whatnot so they don't really and you do it in the spring so they're no bulls have horns but cows are pregnant so there's a real fine line of when you want to do it. You don't want to do it too late to stress the cows, but you can't do it too early because the bulls still got their horns on. You got to have X amount of each. Gotcha. Um, but then the real interesting part is when they're loaded and leave, they got to go all the way to where they're going. I mean, you can't stop like you're taking horses to a rodeo. 
you don't stop in Oklahoma City and let them out at the stockyard and water them and wait overnight. It's like uh, you can't let them out, you know. So you got to go. These guys that are doing it are switching off and on, and they're driving straight through long trips. You get them there, and then there's generally a facility almost identical to the one they left to where they're let out. And you let them out uh, right away in this holding facility and get the hell away from them. Leave them alone because they are stressed. They're traumatized a little bit. And, you know, you just got to let them acclimate. And Do you guys so, lose a lot of elk moving them? No, you don't. Surprisingly not. Man, in the old days, when I was working on my book about buffalo and I was talking about some of the processes of trying to restock yeah. and establish them here and there and shipping them by rail car yeah middle yeah. of summer yep man yeah they had they, a lot of false starts they didn't know what they <laughs> yeah. were doing no, so they, much yeah, they had yeah. No idea yeah. i mean it was like it was a novel concept yeah. at the time well, that's how the elk ended up in texas i found out as they were shipped uh, a very rich man wealthy rancher in texas wanted elk and he got them from the black hills and had them shipped to texas on a train Right? And that's how they ended up there. But the facility on the other end is very much like what they had, and, and they're held in a very small facility for a while to keep an eye on them. And again, you got to test them and and uh, just get them to come. And then they're let out into a bigger area, and they'll stay there for X amount of time, and then they'll have a uh, a release, which is kind of a ceremony for the people that have donated and the volunteers and all that and they'll open the gates and away they'll go and a lot of times which is weird they'll leave the gates of these open they'll come back and go and come back yep. and go and you know they don't know what's going but on. that keeps them going crazy though. yes yes yeah because th there's two things that come i just mentioned uh when i was doing research on uh, on buffalo or bison one of the there's two stories that that what you're telling me reminds me of was one when they moved the animals that want the, the 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 buffalo that wanted being in Alaska around the Copper River Delta Junction, they caught them in Montana, put them on a train out to Seattle, then put them on a boat up to Whittier, <laughs> put them on a train in Whittier up to uh, somewhere in the Fairbanks thing, loaded them on a truck. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually dumped some on a road leading to Slana Mine. How on and earth they did they the even survive? Well, it's, I know it is crazy. Yeah. They want to have, they want cutting 13 loose out of a truck. This is after they had been well established in Delta. Mm -hmm. They took some to a road leading to a mine and just pulled the truck up and opened the gate. And for a decade, they thought they all died because no one ever saw them again. But it was a hot release, and they eventually turned up about 130 miles away, <laughs> having greatly expanded their numbers yeah. out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and then that's when people started putting together that you do like a cold release yeah. where you let them get a little used to yeah, the area yeah. instead of just kicking them out the back of a truck and having them sorted out. You right, know? <laughs> right. Well, and now with the issues of CWD and other stuff, um, it's highly regulated, and you know the feds aren't going to let you move across state lines yeah. without all of this. And <clears throat> we're they don't want you rolling in with brucellosis. Oh or yeah, yeah. And we're getting concerned because of CWD that this whole thing could get shut down, and for a while anyway, and uh, just from by federal regulation. But is so. the, is the quarantine process not? 
Well, it works. I mean, we know, uh, like, for instance, uh, the elk that just went to Virginia and West Virginia and North Carolina came from Kentucky. Um, and, oh, so they're a source herd now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of rubbing them raw, too, because everybody's going back to them because that's the most tested herd of elk in the, in certainly in the lower 40 For disease. Yeah. And so we know... People want clean elk. Yeah, yeah. And originally when elk were being moved, you know, uh, 25 years ago or so, they were coming out of Elk Island in uh, Canada. Yeah. And that uh, herd has been tested and had a very pure-blooded strain. But now with uh, CWD and that, uh, um, APHIS and whatnot, they won't let you cross the international border. Yeah. So... um, Kentucky's getting picked on a lot more. They they provided the elk to Missouri too. Did they really? Yeah. So they're moving yeah. them back westward. Here's a good one. Uh the elk that went from Utah to Kentucky, uh one of them that was a calf that went to Kentucky is now a cow who's uh had calves in Missouri. Really? So wow. It's kind of cool cuz they're tagged, they know where they came from and whatnot. So yeah. What are that you? thing's perception of reality <laughs> yeah. has to be a lot different than most elk, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what are we seeing CWD-wise? <laughs> I don't know. That's a great question. We get lots of emails and lots of, what are we going to do? And nobody has an answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, literally, uh, that's the honest But I, I truly don't know at all. Do we have documented cases of cwd in elk herds in certain states or oh yeah man do we um oh no yeah, no deer sorry in deer yeah, yeah not sure. not in elk yet and uh we haven't even really had in like in montana it hasn't hit yet but it's just across the border so it's a matter of time but they have had but but so do you know how many states have had uh mule deer and white-tailed deer get cwd oh boy I don't know how many, but it's, it's like a lot. Or something. It's several. Yeah. Oh, elk have them in Colorado, or elk have CWD in Colorado. Uh, I believe that's correct. Yeah, but uh, the whole, the bigger picture issue is, what are we going to do? And we don't know. I yeah, mean, it's, it's so early to tell. It, it, it's it's one of those things that we don't know what causes it, and we sure don't know how to treat it or what to do about it and uh it's very frustrating if i can i like uh doing bone in necros because i i love mm-hmm. the neck meat and i take a sawzall and 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 cut it and it makes this gorgeous butterfly you know sure. all that. it's you a might beautiful. start enjoying that dish less man and uh so i, I had a talk at the uh, bha rendezvous last weekend and that's what Every everybody who wasn't really from Montana was well. What about CWD? Yeah. Like we can't touch the spine. We can't do this. Yeah. yeah, I really had a big. I don't know what to tell you, but yeah. this is the way I like to do well, it. Some so. states you can't bring it in. You can only move boned out meat now. Correct. And no. Correct. No heads at all, or the head has to be clean. Clean. Uh, the head has to be clean. Right. Like if I uh, shoot a bull in New Mexico. To take it back to Montana, well, I got to go through two other states, but um, I got to have it boned out and whatnot. Yeah. Zero bones. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. To not be moving it around. Wow. 
Um, it's, I know it's 100% fatal. It takes a long time, but it's 100% fatal. Like when an animal gets it, it'll, yeah. it will die. Yeah. For a while, if you look at the states that have really dealt with it aggressively and, and ultimately unsuccessfully so far, like Wisconsin, they kicked around this idea of doing this like eradication. Um, yeah. But they find that's hard to do. It's really hard to do. I've had a, a number of of uh, all the older biologists that have been around a while and whatnot, and they're kind of like, well, one way or another, we got to get to where we have a strain uh, that's um, immune to it. Yeah. And to get there, we got to start eradicating and culling and everything else. But man, I mean, that's a... Well, I know they did. It's a, a huge undertaking. Yeah, and it's it's expensive and hard. Yeah, they tried one in uh, right on the Alberta Saskatchewan border, uh, and shot a lot of deer. And the basically the test results from the cold deer were completely inconclusive. Right, and right? then they were sitting on a pile of dead deer too. Yeah. And so, and then hunters go ballistic. Yes, That's the problem they had sure. in Wisconsin where people are like, because right now there's no known case, you know, there's no known animal to human transmission right. of CWD. Right. So a lot of people are like, you know, you, you tell me you're going to like wipe this county, you're theoretically going to eliminate every deer in this county in hopes that like some, you know, the, the, the disease goes away. We don't understand how long it stays in the soil anyways. And then we don't even know that there's a real problem. And meanwhile, for the next 10 years, I won't hunt deer to see what might happen. Like, you, you know, pretty hard sell. Oh. Yeah, you're not chasing like, oh, no, it worked here. We're just going to try it here. It's just all experimental. Right. So I think that that's one of the, one of the hangups. I'd say if I was eating this last thing, and I've said this a bunch of times now, if I was eating a deer that I knew was positive, it would be hard for me to enjoy the deer. Very hard. And especially yeah. feed it to my kids. That's the thing. Oh. But yeah. the, my wife would kill me. Oh. The thought yeah. is it's completely <laughs> within that spinal column, right? No. No. Brain. Um, yeah, nervous system. Yeah, I, I think the brain is a big area. Well, they always want to cut out that tissue and test yeah. it and brain, stuff. Brain, nervous system, and then... Uh, but I, I, you know, I think there's so many unknowns and you see people calling it a conspiracy theory too have you seen that yeah yeah and like field and stream it's, blog and stuff i can tell you always yeah. been there and it's, it's right it's not it's not i mean it is there it's uh it's genesis seems to be not well understood but yeah there's a conspiracy theory about it yeah yeah i don't know we get a lot of questions about it and a lot of emails and everything else and you know, it it leads to the debate over feed grounds and other stuff and it's like close proximity to animals yeah animals rubbing noses yeah. with other animals and well and here in washington we got the hoof rot yeah issue going is on mysterious as shit too and there's no cure for that that we know of and it's just where their toes grow all oh, curly it's disgusting crazy. to watch yeah. you know i mean when you look at them they can't hardly walk they look like a horse or a mule you haven't uh worked on their feet in years yeah you know? it looks like an old feedlot yeah sheep yeah yeah, yeah. it's it, it's really hard but to watch and so i i truly haven't looked into that at all either but is that a fungus 
I think so, but I don't. I don't know. I mean, I've heard theories that it's coming from being too close to dairy cattle operations. Um, I don't know if that's accurate. And, you know, and then I, there's other theories of where it comes from and whatnot. And again, uh, we just we don't know what to do about it. Um, now, brucellosis is one that there is a fix that could probably uh, work, but we can't get the brucella uh, agent, whatever that technical term is, off of uh, the terrorist watch list um, to develop a vaccine. Yeah. Um, we have agencies that are have a very high rate of uh, they think they can uh, make the vaccine and they feel very confident that it could be developed and we could literally if if that's true we could literally be vaccinating the cattle that are in that oh I got you. area of uh, yeah we wouldn't be vaccinating elk you'd be vaccinating yep. cattle but they'd be the ones that are in that area of the of the park, which is where brucellosis is a real issue. And uh, that could probably be dealt with or minimized, but so far we haven't had luck in getting that removed from the terror agent list or whatever. Well, what, one of the things that I saw some is I went to a livestock investigators conference one time. It was like for stock detectives. But they had people speaking on all these different issues surrounding livestock. And, they, and there was a guy from Department of Homeland Security there. And he shared with the audience uh, stuff that was seized in Afghanistan. Yeah. In the, in the early invasion of Af Afghanistan, we wanted to root out Al-Qaeda. And there was a lot of communications about um, disease agents in livestock. Oh, I'm sure. And, yeah. even like, and they ran models. They ran models where if some guy went out and nose swabbed, like if some guy went to a certain holding facility, I can't remember what state it was, but it was like South Dakota, or, you know, a big cattle state, and went to a holding facility and swabbed three or four cows in the nose with uh, hoof and mouth, whatever, mm -hmm. one of those, some livestock disease, sure. and they modeled it out how quickly it would spread around the country and just paralyze livestock. Production. Oh, yeah. Think about what it would do to our food supply. Yeah. Oh. So they had serious, yeah. So yeah, and that was a little incredulous. But then this guy gave a whole lecture on it, and they had seriously looked into. Yeah, yeah, know. it's so a, I, I, it's I'm not, real. I'm, I'm not bet. saying that I hope that it. You know, I'm not trying to thwart the research, but um, yeah, it was a thing they look. They definitely put time into livestock disease. Right. Well, I don't know if they they put time into probably a thousand ideas, and maybe they never went anywhere with right. it. But. Well, and obviously, human safety is gonna overrule animal safety every yeah. day. So as it should, but uh, yeah. So how, how much money have you guys, you guys being Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, how much money have you guys, uh, you might not even know this, how much money have you guys spent on Eastern Elk? Oh, boy. Um, millions. Oh, yeah, yeah, easily millions. I was trying to think how many millions that might be, but I, I don't know, 10 million is probably not a, uh, it's probably low, but I don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, from time to time, when you consider all of the things that are involved and what it takes, um, wow, yeah, hard, I, hard to tell. And there's we, even been some false starts. 
like they tried, like uh, someone did a half-assed effort in Wisconsin once, and then oh yeah, came yeah. back and got it right the second time. Right, right, and well, and something interesting in Wisconsin right now is because of uh, a combination of uh, a wolf population and black bears. Some of the elk that that they had uh, in one area, they've actually are now taking and relocating them three or four hundred miles south of that to the get them trying away. to move them. Yeah, to get them away from that uh, predator base because they can't. They're just not building. They're not. Up. Well, no, they're losing ground. They're not. They're not growing. Their the herd is shrinking. And yeah, most people don't count. Uh, Texas at the east, as the east, particularly not Texans, but <laughs> I'm talk about Texas. They kind of count that as one state only, I think. Yeah, <laughs> this, this lone thing. Yeah. So Texas historically had elk. Yep. Yeah, and, they, and there was a period of absence, and Texas has elk now. They do. That didn't come through a formal. Did not come through a formal reintroduction process. Correct, correct. It was more like bucket biology on the land. Yep, yep, yeah. And uh, somewhere in the mid-90s, it changed from being a game animal to an exotic. That's what I want to ask about because I don't really understand that. Well, I don't, I don't know exactly what happened, but I can guess because in Texas... They didn't want the protections. It, yeah, yeah, well, and it's a different culture down there hunting, as you know, yeah. completely. Uh, so the, it's pretty much the landowners run the day in, in, uh, in Texas, as far as wildlife's concerned and, uh, the landowners wanted that changed. And so they were, they were redesignated as an exotic where they can be hunted in high fence and they can be hunted at will, um, for whatever price you want to charge and everything else. So. Without no. without any regulation, no tag required that I know of. So that was like that. I know you don't know officially, but that would be a motivator. When when I heard that that uh, that they had sort of they're they're kind of like trying to his like this this is harsh. I know you wouldn't put it this way, but they're kind of trying to like to deny the legitimacy of elk in Texas. That this is me talking, yeah, not, not, yeah, this no, is not David yeah, Allen talking. No, right. this, this is me, they, Steve. They talking. certainly don't have the same view of them that we do. I would assume, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, when I heard that, I figured it was to try to keep that it was land managers, agricultural, whatever. And that could have been not wanting to deal with regulations. Yeah. But I never thought of the other added thing that this way, if you do have elk, you don't have to deal with state management. Right. Right. Yeah, and it's a way to like treat them like vermin or whatever you want to treat them. Yeah, like. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of that goes on in Texas just because, like I said, the landowners pretty much uh, control the process down there. I'm not saying that's good or bad. That's their culture, and that's just the way it is. Yeah, and uh, no, they have they have you know like like wildlife management in North America was in, in some very literal ways meant to be in a, a repudiation of the European system where the wealthy landowners own the land, they own the animals yep. on it, yep. and common little dirty people, uh, working stiffs, did not have access to that kind of That's stuff. That's correct. And our system is in, in large measure like a, a reaction to that. 
where we have publicly owned wildlife, but Texas follows a year, a, a year, a more European yes. model. Yeah, yeah. I, I say it a lot in the, when I speak at different events. Is we have the most successful wildlife system in the world, and I believe that. And uh, in fact, I think we might have the most successful wildlife system in the history of the world, which is kind of a bizarre statement, but there isn't another one like ours. Ours is state-based. It's that North American model, and it's, it's very regulated and very well managed. And um, like you said, Europe doesn't have that. Um, Australia, well, none of the other countries. No have one's that. ever. No, no one's come close to it. No, you could, you could have places that don't have a big human population and haven't been really impacted by the industrialization of the world yet, and that have maintained through isolation have maintained strong wildlife populations. But to have a place that had like you know this Eden, right, and then to have pretty much wiped it clean. Yeah. And then rebuilt it back up yep. without losing a single large mammal. Right. And to keep it going today amongst 350 million yeah. people walking around. With one, yeah, with it, one of the biggest like uh, GDPs and GNPs yeah, in the world. Yeah. No one's even come close. No. And that's part of the case that I like to make. For you know, we we have a slogan that we use: "Hunting is conservation," and it is a very significant part of that. And of course, for some people, that's a hard dots to connect. But it isn't the act of going out and shooting something and saying that's conservation. It's the process, and our process doesn't work without dollars and cents. Without boots on the ground and without passion for the wildlife and and, and a lot hunters, of and a lot of political will yeah and hunters bring that and represent that and um i talked to an yeah. animal i talked to an animal rights uh activist and professor and um we were having that conversation and i was pointing out to i was actually citing to him some of the work the rocky mountain elk foundation does with how much I mean, we'll touch on this, but one of the things RMEF does is very simply take money that's raised from donors and buy big-ass chunks of critical wildlife habitat and turn it over to public management. Correct. You're like creating, you're, you're saving habitat that otherwise would not be saved. Right. So he was telling me all about all the terrible things, how terrible hunters are. And I was saying to him, well, let's look at this aspect because if you ask any expert, any wildlife expert in this country, they're going to tell you that it comes down to habitat. Yep. For us, because we're not right now faced with an extinction crisis, right? We're faced Correct. with just like providing habitat for existing populations of animals yep. to carry on and live. And I was like, who's doing that? Like, no one is doing this except hunters. Right. And, his, and, and I'm like, if it winds up being that the motivating factor is that someone goes on a hunt, so someone goes on a hunt and kills a elk, and then, sure, they're removing an animal from the population, but they then turn around and devote their life and thousands of their dollars to perpetuating that thing. It winds up being like a net benefit. And his response was, well, it's just too bad that it takes that to motivate people. And I'm like, hey, I'm just glad there's something <laughs> that motivates people because otherwise it wouldn't happen. Well, yeah, I ask him, how many acres have you conserved? Yeah. 
And how many dollars have you donated to these groups? Yeah, they put a couple horses out of business in Central Park. Yeah, I think right. that's like yeah. their, I think over the right. last ten years, that's their biggest accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. In an area that has like a lot of excess horses and a lot of horse yeah. abandonment and a lot of horse feeding yeah. issues, they found a couple more horses that to, to give them no purpose. Well, and that's again part of the argument I like to make with people of without hunting, our wildlife system completely goes away. Yeah, it's just and financial. The, yeah, it's financial and it's the passion and the political will and everything. I mean, it completely goes away. And they just can't imagine, well, you mean less killing of the wildlife is going to destroy the wildlife? And it's like, you're looking at it all wrong. You know, the, the killing of the wildlife is farming as part of what it is. I mean, it, it, not all that wildlife can sustain with all these bodies running around here anymore we yeah. put we put it out of balance man does we have an obligation to to bring some balance that's our role and you know it's i'm sorry but nature does not balance itself anymore because we have tipped the scale disrupted so f- the system yeah but if, we do a pre- i mean like we do a very good job of like creating and managing a system try to that. yeah but another thing that that hunters do and and that you guys did is and i know that you didn't do like you guys didn't it's not fair to say that rocky mountain elk foundation like did kentucky you were a, a, a key player oh, you guys absolutely yeah, you yeah. guys point that out yeah. all the time yeah oh, it was absolutely. like a, it was an effort that had many people including kentucky Fish and game yeah heavily involved in it other outdoor organizations but there like it's easy for people to sit back and you know you could have like a yellow st- or a, a, a new jersey cat lady Right, and she's like, "Well, what's a good landscape that I want to invest my energy?" And you know, people pick like Yellowstone, Yosemite, right? And they pick these like gems that are recognizable from a great distance. But to imagine someone looking at a degraded coal mine site, right, in Kentucky, and be like, "We're going to correct a mistake that was made 100 years ago with the extirpation of the elk, 100 plus years ago." Yeah with the extirpation of the elk. And we're going to take this, which the rest of the country is not looking at and thinking about and caring about. They're just like disregarding it. It's just, it's just shitty little spot in Kentucky, right? Old coal mine ground, who cares? And like make that bloom yeah. and, and put like a keystone, like missing species back on right. the ground there and make that work. Other people aren't doing that. If that's not conservation, I don't know what it is. No, I mean, no that, one else has the motivation to do it. Right. Right, exactly. And, and, you know, that goes on day after day after day in this country, not just with us. There's a lot of groups that are doing great jobs and, and just good sportsman groups and, and guys that like to do it. And, but a rancher or a farmer would do the same thing on his ranch or farm every year. He's culling his herd and he's doing this and, and there's reasons that he does that. It's for the health of his herd, and it's, you know, that's how it works. It doesn't sustain itself otherwise. No, but those guys never have to deal. A rancher never has to have someone come and say, don't tell me you like these cows. Yeah, Because right. you send some <laughs> off to slaughter. Right, right. Yeah. Like, well, let me tell you, I damn sure do like these cows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, I like them all yes, the way to I, the bank. I, yeah. I send some to slaughter. Yeah, right. Uh, another state I wanted to ask you about, and, and I read about this stuff all the time. I don't understand it. Like, what is the elk situation in California? You got like a native 
Thule elk. Right. Okay. And that was the elk that was there. But then well, you got other pockets of like not Thule elk. There's three species of elk in California right now. Um, you got the Rocky Mountain, the Roosevelt, and the Thule. Okay. And that's three of... There were four species at one time, as, as I know it. The other one was the Miriam, uh, which I think came from the same guy that named the turkey. So, yeah, in uh, the old days, you could just name stuff after yeah, yourself. Yeah, and Like that, the guy that did Stellar, Stellar's J, Stellar's Sea Lion. He named like 10 things after himself. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad form to do that now, I understand. Yeah, right. Yeah. You don't do it, no one does anymore. We have a Miriam. He's like, I know what I'm going to call that turkey. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, just so the name. California has those three species. Where huh, where was the Miriams? The Miriams is gone. The, from yeah, from what I know, the Miriams were in the Southwest. Okay, uh, I think mostly just like the Miriams turkey, Arizona, yeah, Arizona and New Mexico. And they feel that when those animals were shot out, that was the end of that. That's what I'm told. The end of that strain yeah. or whatever. Yeah. They, uh, uh, one of the best bi- elk biologists uh, in the country, I think, is John Cade. He ran White Mountain for 32 years and uh he was on our board um and so he was telling me the story of the miriams from back in the day around uh uh the grand canyon area and that um which i wasn't aware of i didn't know there was a fourth species but yeah it's like with bighorns now they now they call it into question but taxonomically they used to think there was a the audubon bighorn eastern montana dakotas Okay. And now, now it seems like the trend in taxonomy is to is to get rid of those divisions that we used to think were significant. Yeah. So not like, you know, it was a big, a horn, big Rocky horn. Mountain bighorn. I've seen horn. some big ones turkey hunting over there in eastern right? Montana. Yeah. yeah, you can't hunt them there yeah. either, but I've seen them. So uh, the Miriams was in the southwest, and that and that strain or subspecies, whatever you want to call it, whatever gone. is gone, long gone. And I the guess. Roosevelt is coastal california uh yeah and oregon and they're in oregon they're probably more of them in oregon than any other so yeah they're in washington too i think at one time they went up into bc Mm -hmm. but i don't know if there's uh, much up there or not they're 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 a much bigger bodied smaller horned uh they live in the dark timber stuff and uh, uh but the thule um is a whole other interesting species. They're smaller all the way around. And uh, I think the only place they're at is California. Yeah. So the Thule, how, do you have any idea, like, how is that? Like, do you, are you guys, as an organization, are you involved? Because that stuff's all private land, sure. right? Well, we're involved because it's elk, but because it's private land, that limits... What, what can we do. can do. Yeah. And if we're asked to do things, um, and we wouldn't even do anything on private land if it didn't somehow have some kind of very obvious benefit to the species, but we would also prefer it had some kind of benefit to the public at large and certainly the hunting public. So that's something you guys consider? Well, we sure. Like you, you know, don't put in a bunch of water tanks on a private land. Not unless we're asked to and probably wouldn't do that unless it was really benefiting the elk population in the greater area and it was like hey this is the best place for these guzzlers so this is what we're going to do 
I mean, we get questions a lot of times about, well, why do you do those easements on those private ranches? They don't even let us hunt. And it's like, no, but those elk are living there over 50% of the year. They spend their entire winter there. That habitat is critical. Winter habitat is really critical. And so if we have a willing landowner that'll work with us and work with us to keep that habitat uh, ideal and will agree that that habitat is going to be protected in perpetuity, we're trying to keep those corridors open for elk because elk move a lot. Yeah. They move everywhere. And so, yeah, we have to look at the bigger picture when it comes to them. And we're not trying to just take, you know, I get letters of, oh, yeah, I suppose you're hunting over there. And that guy gave you a lot of money. And, wow. you know, he didn't give us anything. And I'm not hunting there. So <laughs> it's, it's for the elk. Well, not, you guys do a lot of matching also really matching funds for different programs sure. also and sure. i think that's something a lot of folks don't understand it's because um, i i do hear that often as well, well it, it, and one thing and i don't know if people really confuse it or they're just looking for something to confuse it with but they think we own this land i mean i still read on the internet over and over about how many ranches we own and oh yeah all their VIPs are hunting them and stuff. We don't own any ranches. We don't own, we own less than 10,000 acres of ground right now. And that's only because we haven't gotten rid of the 10,000. But so, how do you get rid, like, if you, let, let's say you, you, you identify a, a piece of ground. Right. Okay. Here's what and you guys work on, like, you guys work on a willing seller, willing seller, willing buyer. So, there's a ranch, you identified it as key elk habitat, it goes up for sale. Um, those that we do less of those, we have done some of those. I'll give you a, a different example that's probably more common. Yeah, uh, please. Uh, 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 in in Montana, about two three years ago, we completed a project that was called the Tenderfoot Project, and it was up in the Smith River drainage. Um, and what it was was a uh, combination of checkerboarded public and private, public and private, all this land. And it was the private uh, was owned by a foundation of when a family died and they left this money to a foundation. And it was checkerboarded with Forest Service ground. <clears throat> and they came to us. It was called the Bear Foundation out of Billings. And they came to us and said, uh, the heirs of this family would like to sell this property, but we don't really want to sell it and just see it developed and ruined and blah, blah, blah. What can we do? Can you guys work with us? And this is very common for us to be drug into a project with the BLM or the Forest Service because we can go out and and pull these deals together so much easier and faster than a government can. Yeah. And get it all permitted and everything ready to go, and then you do a simultaneous closing where it'll close from private to us and from us to public that day. Got and, you. And this involved $8 million worth of LWCF money as well. 
a dirty old oil company. Right? Yeah, that's land and water conservation. <laughs> right. can, I, can I break that down real yeah, quick? Yeah, yeah. So land and water conservation fund, you've probably been hearing a lot about that lately because now and then the land and water conservation fund will expire and then it'll get caught up in like a custody sort of battle. And yeah. People will use it as a pawn. It'll get delayed and then refunded. But what it is, it takes money that the, that the federal government raises with offshore oil leasing. Correct. And they take that money. So the, 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 you know, you're talking about oh, out in the ocean, land that is not owned by an individual, but is like considered U.S. property. And they pull oil up out of the ground, under the ocean. And there's a, there's a, a fee that the, the extractor pays to the government. And some of that money goes to fund the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And the Land and Water Conservation Fund is used on public access, wildlife issues, habitat enhancement, yep. boat launches. Yep, yep, yeah. stuff exactly. That goes, yeah, stuff that goes direct to, um, direct to all Americans and sportsmen. And right now we're in what seems like been dragging on forever. Some you know, people a little bit worried about the future of the land and water conservation. Well, fund. and like you said, it's used as a political football, and it's, it's so intellectually dishonest, I believe, by politicians to do that because these are not government funds these are royalty funds that were paid to this fund yeah and they're supposed to be our dollars for conservation and we're not getting a hundred percent of them anymore we're getting less than 50 percent of them so they're robbing that piggy bank as well but you know that's a whole nother story yeah, the first time it was the first time it was put in it was put in place for for like what felt like forever yeah and then now they're always like dragging an hour. They'll fund it for a year. Yeah, and, you know, right. it's just it's, so it's, it's always like kept up in the air. But if you like to hunt and fish or wander around outside, you should be you should be involved in making sure well, the yeah. land and water conservation fund is sound. You should be calling your senators and beating on them every day until they permanently reauthorize. Yeah, and stop it. and not and use it as and not putting crazy yeah. riders on it and shit yeah. all the time, including the senators from Utah. But I yeah. won't point anybody out. I don't think their phones work. <laughs> huh? I said, I don't think yeah, their they phones took those, work. They unplugged those well, phones a few yeah. months ago. So that's, that's a kind of a typical project for us. Where so, yeah, but, but all, I interrupted you because you were saying yeah, that. So $8 million. $8 million of, of those funds. And then our cell, we were like the lead, uh, the lead group, if you will, lead public group in this. There were other local sportsman groups and whatnot they didn't have a lot of money but they wanted to be a part of it and you know we welcome that we want them to be i think we probably had two million in it the whole thing ended up to be about 11 or 12 million but today eight, eight of that being oil at, or eight, land eight, water eight, conservation yeah, eight eight or nine yeah yeah and then you guys had a couple million into it yeah and what was the end result so what the end result is over eight thousand acres now that is one contiguous block of public land uh and this is your own private hunting ground right david allen yeah private. right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um, me and the chief <laughs> of the forest service get to hunt it all by ourselves and uh yeah. steve's helicopter <laughs> But I mean, it's spectacular country. It's just so it's, like it, new, it, it's like new public land. Yeah, yeah, forever open to hunt. Yeah, right now. Yep. Oh well, the fishing is spectacular. The Smith River Valley. I don't know if you've ever been on the Smith River. It's one of the most 
pristine rivers. Yeah, you got to apply for yeah. a permit to float the damn thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And it, but it is spectacular. It, but the whole area is. And uh, my kids both caught their first trout on the Tenderfoot Creek, which runs right oh, through yeah? this property. And yeah. So that's, that's a typical project of how we would work. The Forest Service or BLM primarily will look to us to be the lead partner. Get That's just because you guys are more nimble and don't have as much regulation. There's no about, red tape. Right. No, yeah. no red tapes and all that other. We can just go do... They don't need to go get a congressional approval. Correct. And all that. Yeah. Correct. And uh, then all of us will go lobby... Our senators, now that tenderfoot one specifically, um, I would be the first one to give Senator Tester most of the credit because he got that on the priority list for uh, LWCF money that year. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, the Democrats were in power at that time, and he was in a position to provide that, and he did. And uh, that's how it works all around the country. They trusted their own kind on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we'll do a lot of projects like that. But we'll also have mom and dad rancher, probably in their seventies or eighties, and the kids don't want that ranch, and uh, mom and dad don't really want to let go of it or see it busted up or see it sold to. A Californian or whatever, you know, yeah, and sons of bitches. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, uh, and, uh, uh, the, uh, the joke. The joke <laughs> is that that's where Rory Kale's from. So it's pretty common, or fairly common, for these older generation ranchers to start looking for avenues, or what are they going to do with these ranches? Because there's a lot of them now in the West that are you know, in the third or fourth generation. And the kids don't necessarily want to stay on the ranch or they don't want the ranch or whatever. They might want to cash in on it or something. But the folks who have lived there and most likely born and raised there want to see that ranch stay whole if they can. And we do too for a number of reasons. the, the most important one is, again, to keep that, that migration uh, corridors healthy and to keep the habitat available for the elk and, and other deer. And so uh, they'll come to us in a, you know, one or two or three different types of scenarios. One is um, it might be a... Uh, Paid easement. They want to do a, uh, an easement where they'll sell you the easement so they can get some money and do whatever. We're not doing many of those anymore. We're trying not to. But what we'll try to do is either find a public way to keep that land whole or we'll try to go out and find a, what we call a conservation buyer and somebody who might be interested in a ranch like that but we'll agree to keeping it in a conservation easement and keeping it whole. Um, and, and this would be, in these cases you're talking about, the landowner. Yes. Knows they're not going to make as much money on this as they could. Correct. Oh, they're, yeah. They're trying to get... Oh, yeah. I see. The land means more to them 
than the money. Yeah, in most cases, but, they, but they'd want out or need to get out. Yeah, and if they can get something and and know that it's protected. Yeah, yeah. And frankly, the buyer knows that he or she may actually be buying something that is going to be very limited for them on the other end to get yeah. rid of someday. Yeah. But if they have a conservation passion or ethic, um, I actually think that sometimes that enhances the value of the property. But, I, you know, everything's in the eye of the beholder, I yeah, guess. Yeah, because this person's saying that, like, they're writing a check for land that they're not going to be able to change their mind and develop. They can't, that's, yeah. they, well, they can't develop it. You know, they can't break it up into 20-acre ranchettes or... Yeah. And in most easements, the, you know, there's covenants in those easements, but most of them are not so restrictive that you can't do anything with the land, but breaking them up and into parcels is one that we'll hardly ever, if ever, agree to. Yeah, and there's some, on their part, there are some tax incentives that ease that burden for people in, in some oh, states. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. They get... Uh, the 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 person putting it into the easement gets a significant tax credit based on a couple of things, and one is how much is that their principal place to live? Are they making a living off of that land? What's the what's the place appraised for? I mean, uh, we're into uh, the beginnings of a project now that will be really significant if we can succeed at it again lwcf would play a role in it uh it's not a huge piece of property but it's in the paradise valley north of yellowstone really critical calving area and winter area for elk tons of elk there but there's a lot of bears and a lot of wolves there too but the owner is wanting to sell he was at $25 million. He's now dropped to $22 million. But uh, that's a lot of money. Yeah. And, um, you know, the state of Montana is interested in the property. If we can put the thing together and make it work, it would become, again, public ground forever and uh, would be open to the public. Man. So, you know, we're trying to work on that one now and and fundraise and there's actually some pretty significant uh people in that paradise valley that own property that probably would donate the founder of home depot has a ranch over there and richard childress you know from nascar has a ranch real near this property and there's some others so uh, we think that if we can get some LWCF, we can get it high enough up on the list of priority for LWCF. We think we can um, maybe make this thing happen. You know, an interesting land deal that I know you guys are involved in. It, it, hopefully, you, re, you remember some details, more details than I remember. But the story goes: this is again another story from Montana, but. Uh, a guy was driving somewhere to get some 22 shells in north central Montana. And on the way, his wife picks up one of those little flyers with like sells used cars and stuff. Right. 
And on the drive, she like finds this little weird patch of ground that's for sale. And they check it out, and it winds up being that it's sort of a bridge that connects the road system with a large chunk of landlocked BLM. Huh. I don't know that I one. I think I read about this in Bugle. Yeah, we probably did. But then uh, you guys you guys came in and, and uh, facilitated where that couple did the purchase, and, and, and I, I believe the Elk Foundation was involved in it yeah. and wanted to become a public access well, to it, give people a access lot to of a big chunk happens. of landlocked ground. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're developing some software right now that will identify uh, where properties lie with corners lining up or not lining up, et cetera, in all the western states. But a, a, a good example, much like that one. Um, you mean in order to enhance access? Yes. Well, yeah. and to find these opportunities, little pieces, there was a 40-acre piece. But yeah, but just to be clear, that's not, that really doesn't really do anything for the elk. I mean, obviously, if you buy Correct. that no. buy that land... It, you, but it's you, good for the public. Right. Yeah. Right. It, it, this particular one the, uh, that happened is you had the county road, and you had this great big ranch over here, and they owned some property over here, but their uh, property corners, for some reason, I don't know exactly how to draw it, didn't line up square. Okay. There was 100 feet where they were off. And there was a 40-acre piece of private where the corner was off by 100 feet, you know, where they didn't line up exact. And we heard about it through a volunteer of ours that it was going up for sale. It hadn't been offered yet. And the guy that owned it. How big of a chunk of land? This was 40 acres, but what it did is it opened up 20,000 acres here. 20,000 acres. Yeah. We bought it sight unseen. (laughs) Uh, for $190,000 because this yeah. rancher, very large rancher, uh, wanted it to keep things locked up. Yeah. And, yeah. and we and we turned it over to the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, and they made a parking lot and a trailhead out of this piece right here. And now today, you can go in and access that whole 20,000 acres. That's what, that must be what I'm talking about. Well, it could be. Yeah, yeah it Because it was be. a volunteer, and they, it was just yeah. a funny story how his wife was like, oh, what's this little piece yeah. for sale? Yeah. 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 And, but there are a lot of those out there that just we don't know about and people don't know about. And those are so ripe for the picking to open up. So you guys, Brown. so the Elk Foundation, like you guys are looking at, um, you guys have a mandate, apparently, to enhance public access. Access is huge for us. And our, our members, it'll come back as, uh, when we poll our members, it'll come back just about every time as one of the two top priorities um, that they will expect from us nowadays. What would be another one? Well, another one is advocacy, advocate for, you know, hunting and whatnot, and obviously habitat. Those are the yeah. three big um, across the board every time. And you guys try to <clears throat> stay responsive to what people... We, yeah, we try to put a lot of effort into all three. And I, I would say we're... We're more actively looking for the access opportunities today than anything else because they just aren't around that much, and somebody private's going to buy up. It's a time-sensitive issue. 
Well, I'd have to be honest with you. If I knew what I knew in a different time and place, I'd have paid 190,000 acres for that piece of ground. It's a beautiful little piece of ground. A little tiny stream goes through it, and I would have had my own private, you know. I couldn't do it in this job, but (laughs) yeah. You know, I mean, it would have sold easily. People would have bought, and that's why that rancher wanted it. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco, and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states. Or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system made in the USA... Gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like You still slide stuff right across the deck it doesn't catch on the d-rings the d-rings are built in the drawer system fits any trucker van on the road in the usa from the last 20 plus years deck is a game changer there's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you the stuff i want in my truck is in my truck out of the way and secure 
Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. So what's that relationship like now? Is he pissed at you guys? Uh, no, no, I don't think he's so mad so much. Uh, it's been kind of an adversarial relationship with the public anyway. Um, I've actually met with one of them. It's two brothers. It's the Wilkes brothers that are kind of infamous in Montana. They own, uh, well, they own, I think they might be the largest private landowner in Montana now. They're the two gentlemen that perfected the fracking technique, and they yeah. sold that company for a couple billion dollars. Bought some land. And they're buying more and more of it all the time in, in different states, in Idaho and, and in Oregon and whatever. Um, but... Uh, you know, we don't have like a warm and fuzzy with them as far as relationship, but uh, I try not to get real crossways with uh, landowners either because, you know, you gotta, they got to be a part of the equation. Yeah, but I mean, in that case, it seems to me you're performing a, you're performing a public service. Oh, we were. No question. Yeah, that's that's what, that, yeah. Usually yeah. when you try to perform a good public service, probably someone's going to be pissed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a general yeah. thing that's true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, and they're not uh, hurting for land or elk. Let me mm-hmm. <laughs> they probably control access to four or 5,000 head of elk in central Montana alone and in that area. So they're okay. Yeah. And uh, they'll get a bull, yeah, and and, and yeah, yeah, <laughs> and we would still work with them on anything that made sense for our mission. So I mean, I'm not trying to pick a fight with them, but no. we'll we'll compete with them if the opportunities there. But that's yeah. that same uh, Durfee Hills. Area. Oh, well, that's yeah. where the Durfee Hills are at. Okay, the, the Durfee Hills are as the crow flies, probably oh six seven miles from that little piece that we bought gotcha on the, yeah gotcha same thing yeah so what are the like what's the um what's the future of the elk foundation look like you guys are you guys are in a good financial position we're in a great financial position um yeah we really are we've eliminated all of our debt that that there was and uh um the ranch that was gifted to us in 2000 in New Mexico, and then the family later let us sell that ranch with the agreement that we'd put 100% of it into an endowment fund uh, was a concept that I took to them because we're not ranchers and we shouldn't be in the ranching business. So we went back to them and asked them, if they would be willing to amend the deed restrictions and whatnot. And and uh, it took about 18 months when they agreed to it. And so we ended up turning a 100,000-acre unbelievable elk property in New Mexico into a $30 million endowment fund. And, of course, now that $30 million in the stock market, the way it's been the last few years, has grown substantially. Gotcha. So that's giving you guys a lot of muscle for some of these projects. And we agreed that we would not spend anything on that from that endowment on general funding, the light bill, salaries, anything. It would all be spent on mission. And we only take 
uh, a percentage of the earnings every year. The corpus is never touched. And so it's been generating roughly a million and a half to two million dollars a year of gravy for us to spend on on core mission on mission but even out of all your money like you gotta don't you got you're obligated oh, yeah. to spend oh yeah we have a lot more we're i mean we're spending a lot more than no, that. i'm saying like yeah. what percentage of you what percentage of your total money goes to mission oh um you're talking about how charity charity navigators yeah, yeah. And, and it's right it fluctuates depending on the year between eighty nine percent to ninety one percent. Okay, um, and some some of that. So then, then remainder is administrative. Yeah, or promotional. It, uh, yeah, and that's all in your administrative and cost of fundraising and that kind of thing, which is uh, very good. I mean, we we uh, nearly every year have a four star rating. Every once in a while, it might drop to a three. Actually, the sale of that ranch caused us to drop a star in the rating one year because the way charity navigators rates organizations nonprofits it's based on a formula they have but it's basically how much of the money that comes in is actually going out towards mission okay well we bring in a 30 million dollar sale of a ranch and a million and a half goes out is like makes you look like yeah yeah, made it look bad on paper but so you look at the bigger picture yeah yeah so but that all works out and then we're back to a four and you know that's okay do you feel uh generally optimistic for elk when you look ahead i don't know 10 years 20 years yeah i do for that short term um i think like we talked earlier i uh I have more concern maybe for the, the, the little bit longer vision down the road of will this culture sustain? And um, I don't know. I just see how much chipping away there is at it from so many angles, from you know gun rights to... Uh, predator issues to the social issues. Um, I live in Montana. There should not be a public school in Montana that you can't talk about hunting and fishing in. Yeah. And I can assure you in most of the Billings high schools, it isn't very high on, I mean, it's probably frowned upon as much as it is embraced. And that's kind of scary. Um, it just, I mean, it's such a part of our culture and the legacy of that state that it's like, what is wrong with it? Yeah. I mean, well, what's, what's where I live, I, you know, I dealt with it when I lived in New York for a while and dealt with that with my kids there. I've dealt with it here. I look that shit in the face and stare it down. Yeah, man. I know I, you do. I win every time, though. I win every time when I'm dealing with those it's, people. You know why you <laughs> win is because you're just speaking the facts. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and what I, you know, what I like about the way you do it is, you do it very methodically, very matter of factly, and honestly, you, you don't get all hyped up and you're not making up a bunch of gibberish and it's like. Yeah, we eat meat. This is how you get meat. I mean, 
Most of the people that are criticizing hunting are eating steak and lamb and chicken and whatever else at home. If they had any idea how that actually got to their yeah to their plate, and and not only are they eating meat, but they're not putting a dime or a thought. No. A dime or a thought into long term, like the the, the long term well being of wildlife in America. Not a bit. Not they think bit. it just all happens with having nice thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They live in a in a a, a mythical yeah. uh, reality. If I just think enough about how much I like animals, everything will be taken care well, of. It's like no, that, that's not how Disney it's going to happen. Told us so when yeah. we grew up. It's uh, you know we all grew up with that, or at least I did. It's the Disney syndrome of Bambi and all of that. And folks, even the, the, the people that talk about man needs to get out of the way and let nature take care of itself, if they had any idea how cruel nature really is at times, and it is, that's part of nature. Uh, look at the winter we just had. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then you look at, you know, and I get it a lot over the predator debates, well, and, and I don't uh, fault the predators for it. That's what they are. But it's a grisly process for, a, no, no pun intended, for a, a wolf or a bear to bring down an adult elk and kill it and eat it. And sometimes they eat it before it dies, before they kill it, you know? Yeah, so, and, that, and cruel is relative. That's exactly. sort of how we look at it. Exactly. That deer that's being eaten half alive yeah. might not look at it as cruel. We do not know that. Right. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what they think. It's just their day to day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, with you. they're surviving every day. That's, that's, their, that's all they're worried about, <laughs> staying alive. You know, so um, – that stuff worries me because there's so much political that can be injected into this. And um, I mean, you look at the state of California, you know, we, we kind of laughingly joke about it once in a while, but it's getting harder and harder for real wildlife uh, management to take place there. It's getting so restrictive and so controlled by... Uh, Oh, well, HSUS and some of those folks. Yeah. The, the influence is so heavy. Uh, so you feel that like a, like you might see a gradual erosion of people who are incentivized to perform duties of wildlife conservation, financial work, donors, just because of a degradation of like the culture around hunting yeah and we become more and more urbanized all the time and we're more and more removed from the wildlife and from rural and um i i want us the elk foundation to start an effort in promoting rural values because that's where really all of this hits the road is the wildlife's in the rural areas and yeah and it's uh uh, it's so key to the future of wildlife, the rural. Besides, I just like rural better. <laughs> yeah. I do. I think I think they're more aligned with my values. I'm not saying that your values You're not saying I'm an evil that. person. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, no, I, I hear you. you know, I think that one of the best ways I've heard it put was um, that there's a, you know, and I've lived much of my life in urban areas, but 
I was born in a rural area, live in an urban area. Um, but there's a perception. I think it's kind of a toxic perception in urban America of wildlife as a relic of the past. Yeah. Where it's like you're looking at this thing that doesn't really relate to us and it kind of exists as this reminder of the way things once were. Yeah. And um, it's best just kind of like looked at, you know, and that fosters kind of a naive perspective on what it takes to maintain and manage these things that are not going to, um, just because the nature of civilization and, and, and being in the industrialized world that aren't going to remain static with no one minding them. Right. It's like every ounce of ground we have at this point, the up, up until eight, I don't know what the hell it was, up until 1890 when the frontier officially closed, up until 1890 we had accidentally wild areas. They were wild because they hadn't, you know, no one had gotten there yet. They hadn't gotten there, right. Everything we have now, all the wildlife we have now, and all the wild places we have now are because someone made an, took active steps to make sure that that was the case. Right. It's not just there because like, oh, it's just there because God put it there. It's like, now it's like there because someone or some body of people made some sacrifices and did some stuff and spent some money or whatever to make it be there. Yep. Yep. It's a very different kind of, like we live in a very different kind of world. And to act like we're going to somehow step away from wildlife management and wild, wild lands management and have this Eden, you know, where no one even looks at it or right. touches it. It's just like, it, it's false. And you can't, you're not going to go anywhere around the world and point out a place that works like that. No, you're absolutely right. And that's why the whole public lands debate and all that other stuff becomes even more germane today is we have to have it without it this whole thing crumbles yeah. and it goes away and the fact that we're back to having like that conversation and that's like one of the things that I'm very happy with with some of the people we have in power right now is it seems like there's some good resistance i mean you have people in power who are pushing against federal land management on behalf of the american people but also some powerful people yeah. right now who are upholding our very old and very successful idea of yeah, land and, management on behalf of the American people. Yeah, and it yeah, and, and not to get into that whole debate cuz you know, it's been hashed over so many times, but it's just physically and fiscally impossible. It's just, it's just a lunatic idea to think that states are going to take over these places and all of a sudden it's just going to be so much better. It's like for what? What? And what are you basing that on? Yeah, there's no, there's no good example to go look at. Well, but where that's coming from, to me, is where the debate needs to go. Is what's driving that guy or gal to want to change ownership or direction of that public land? Most of it's coming from there's some deficiencies on that public land now, and it's making people crazy. And that's where the debate needs to go. And we got to fix our public land management strategy. Part of the problem is we don't really have a strategy in so many areas now. It's just been so much 
lawsuits and fighting and political posturing and yeah. all of that. You mean it's time to like treat some of the symptoms? Yeah. Yeah, yeah forget. Instead of euthanizing the patient. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because you will absolutely kill the patient, yeah. you know, and then we'll have nothing. So let's fix, let's get some real uh, debate going and let's make some adults get in a room and sit at the table and say, okay, when I say logging, you say clear cut. That's not, you know, we got to stop this stuff. We haven't clear cut in over 30 years in this country. But the minute we say, well, we want to do a timber harvest or a thinning project, oh, they're going to clear cut. Oh, my God, let's get to the courthouse. We got to sue them. Yeah. It's like, no. And you feel that that kind of stuff creates that animosity. I, it's driving a lot of it. Yeah. It's driving a lot of it. And it's not helpful at all and it's not it's not helping the wildlife it's not helping the land and and it's uh ruining the whole debate and you know we got to start managing these lands we can't make everything wilderness i'm sorry i love going into wilderness. i've had some great experiences in wilderness but it's not the best habitat in the world um the best habitats where these animals are hanging out uh, most of the time is private land <laughs> Yeah, and that's because it's managed for another reason, you know. But um, we we got to get some adults at the table, and it needs to start with our political leaders. They got to quit trying to take advantage of the squeaky wheels and try to you know make uh, political hay out of it, which is all they're doing. They're just trying to leverage uh, somebody's passion or somebody's heartburn. Yeah, and they're not providing any solutions or any answers or any fixes. They're not trying to. No, uh, it seems a lot like burning the house down. Now. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, it's in, it's insane. So yeah, Yanni, concluding thoughts. What's uh? What would where would be like a surprise state that's like that you know of that, that people are thinking about trying to do some elk work that. It's not on anyone's radar, like maybe back east. It might be coming up soon. Well, uh, I'll tell you where we get right now the most calls from through our volunteers and whatnot uh, consistently is New York, upstate New York. No shit, really? Yeah. And we're not opposed to it, but they got to get, you know, the state – uh, on board, and they got to get their wildlife agency on board. And some wildlife agencies, just for whatever reason, or probably a number of reasons, they just don't want to bite it off. It's, mm. you know, it's. Uh, they don't feel like dealing with the hassle. Yeah. Yeah. And they know that it's going to be a hassle. And I'm not saying that's New York. I don't know. Right. But, but do you, it comes up a lot. Do you guys help? Um, if you have private citizens saying, "Hey, let's make this happen in New York," and you say, "Well, you got a lot of, you got a lot of groundwork to take care of before we can get involved," do you kind of help them understand what that might look like? Yeah, oh yeah. yeah, we will tell them. And the very first thing is their wildlife agency, whether it's fishing game or whatever they call it, that agency has to sit down and start developing a long-term management plan. 
But do you guys help with that? Oh, sure. No, okay. absolutely. We'll, we'll provide. So you're there along the way to provide assistance, oh, yeah. but you can't make them want it. We can't make them. That's correct. Right. Yeah. They have to want to do it first. And like in the case of West Virginia, this was a governor, uh, the governor who was just terming out there, who he's from the area where they're releasing them and, and reintroducing them, and he is like, we're going to make this happen. Gotcha. And then all of a sudden, everybody got religion. But until that happened, it was like, yeah, you know, well, we don't know. We got other things to do. You didn't have a good partner on the ground. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it has to come from the state agency first. And then, yeah, then a lot of wheels can start churning. Uh, upstate New York, from what little I know about it, would probably be a pretty good area in some places. Oh, the Adirondacks, That's man? what they're talking. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, our, our members out there would be like all over it. That's and great. You, you can imagine the people out there that would be all over it. So, Yeah. I'll be watching for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to see it. I mean, let's go just, catch one right now and turn them loose. Yeah, <laughs> Kelly. Between the four of us, we could drive straight through yeah. there. I was kind of the second one. All you go want, for. You, you have a high um, level. You have a high level position. <laughs> we uh, we we touched on a little bit where you where you were saying how in California, you know, it's getting really hard to make any sort of you know real wildlife management decisions, and it seems like. A lot of places, and I believe Michigan sort of is, they're trying to address it, but where um, we're not letting science no. make those decisions anymore. And I kind of feel like science is stuck in the middle because you have people like um, Humane Society, you know, just they get people emotionally riled up. Mm-hmm. They can let them, you know, make, get decisions made pulling that direction. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the, you know, you know, if it's like a predator issue or whatever, that again isn't you know science based, right? And it goes, you know, and it's just like science is stuck in the middle, and yeah, it seems like a big problem, but I don't know how to address it. Yeah, science is being manipulated and used, and um, you know, put it in the jargon of nowadays is there's probably some fake science and some real science, and mm-hmm. whose science are you going to believe and um, it's sad because when we lose real science, we're really going to lose. So um, there's a lot of that. Playing on emotions you mentioned is a huge one. Uh, you know, there's things that... Oh, look at this. Uh, this is the thing I kept wanting to talk about is the House Joint Resolution 69. Right, right, exactly. That's so, a, that's let, a me, let me lay it. Yeah, can I, can I... Yeah. I want you to comment on this, but... So, a state, like generally, states manage wildlife in their state, Correct. regardless of who owns the land. Supposed to, yeah. yeah. So, um, if you have a state, let's say Wisconsin, right? You got some state land, some federal land, some privately held land, some county land, and let's just say we're talking about turkeys. Turkeys live on all this stuff, but those turkeys are managed by the state, regardless of what bit of land they have to be Where they on. live, that's right. Now, a lot of people will say, like, well, how come you're always saying that federal land management is good and state land management is good? Like, how could that be? Like, how, why wouldn't it be that one's better for everything? Well, the same reason that, like, uh, the federal government is real good at maintaining the military. The state government is real good at licensing vehicles. 
And a lot of it has to do with inertia. States have managed wildlife very successfully for over a century. And the federal government has done relatively a pretty good job with large tracts of undeveloped land over a century plus. And interrupting that static system that's proved pretty successful is going to lead to problems or could potentially lead to problems or lead us to unknown areas. And state management works well. But in Alaska, you have 20% of the state is refuge land, national refuge. Yep. Under the Obama administration, man, some management, some wildlife management aspects were stripped away from the state on national wildlife refuge lands. So they had always managed it. Then there was a period that came up during the, the eight years of the Obama administration where they lost some of that management capability. Now we're correcting the situation and we're in the process of handing Alaska man, its own management of the wildlife everywhere in the state back to them. So, right. so we have this 20% thing. Now all the management practices that Alaska does with, with predator control or whatever is happening on 80% of the state already. It's happening everywhere, always was happening there, okay? So all of this killing wolf babies and digging grizzlies out of holes in the ground oh, and yeah, torturing right. them and killing them and slaughtering cubs is all shit that has not been happening categorically across 80% of the state. And they were doing the same management practices on the chunk of land right. up until recently anyways. And in their toolkit that they have at their disposal to do management is a thing called predator control where now and then, depending on the situation, you will have a rise, a thing where you have a population of animals that becomes somewhat endangered through predation and in a way to alleviate pressure on that population of animal, be it a, a herd of moose Heard of caribou, could be a non-game species. You might get aggressive about curbing predator numbers on that spot. That's something that Alaska, like I said, they do it in 80% of their state. They used to do it in 100%. They're going to now be doing it 100% again. The fact that people have turned this into that they're now being allowed to like torture baby bears. Right. Is what they're getting at is this. It'd be like, there are bear seasons, okay? So if you move a bear season early enough, people be like, oh, bears are still in their den at that time, but the season's now open early enough where they're in the den. Therefore, now there's going to be den digging. I'll point out that the Koyukuk, the native Alaskans, the Koyukuk, who live on the Koyukon uh, River, they know they dig bears out of dens because they think that any chicken shit could shoot a bear out of the ground. It takes a special man to go down in the den and drag him out of there and kill him. So there are some den diggers, and that's one group, a native Alaskan group. But all of this talk you're hearing when you go on Facebook, all this bullshit about like all this awful stuff that's going to happen to all these animals, it's just like you're looking at what they're doing is taking management policies looking at some kind of absurd worst case scenario that might arise out of a management policy should they deem it necessary at some undetermined time in the future to do some level of predator control on 20% of Alaskan ground. That's what this is all about. Yep. It's absurd. Welcome to the playbook of the uh, you know extreme 
environmentalist, animal rights, whatever, that, that's right out of their playbook. If, it's like I said a minute ago, if I say logging, they say clear cut. If I say uh, wolf management in Alaska or bear management in Alaska, they'll say what you just described. That's Wholesale slaughter. Oh, right? yeah. It's They're going to go out and kill it, every wolf yeah, puppy. And, and, take it to the absolute extreme because they know there is a percentage of the population that A, doesn't know better, and B, isn't going to research anything, and they'll, they'll buy it. And the Obama administration, primarily Dan Ash, who was head of Fish and Wildlife Service at the time, caved to that kind of uh, uh, social pressure. Yeah. Uh, and basically, because Dan knew he was leaving that job, and he caved to it on his way out the door and said, here, Trump administration, Merry Christmas. Here's a little present for you. Yeah. Uh, that's about what happened. And no, it was like, it was like someone, the, the way animal rights works is y'all you're always sort of looking for like a, a, a they're pra, they're pragmatic in a way they always look for like a little thing you could win sure right yep so don't have to win the whole thing win no, a little but, and yeah it, just like oh i got an idea let's say uh, yeah. hunting mountain lions with dogs we could probably win that yeah right because right if you if you poll americans hunting has a higher approval rating now than it did in the in the 1980s yeah yeah, it does. Higher than now in the 70s. 70-some percent of Americans support regulated hunting. All right. But when you parse it out and start asking about individual aspects of hunting, right. you'll find areas that enjoy less support. Yep. So you manipulate those areas. When, when people are like looking at that sometimes Alaska, and, and I'll point out that oftentimes when Alaska is doing heavy-duty predator control, they're doing heavy-duty predator control to aid subsistence cultures. Yes, that's exactly so right. rural, native Alaskan subsistence communities who rely on a resource of moose or caribou for, as their primary protein resource, Alaska will oftentimes come in and do heavy-duty predator control. That's exactly right. To enhance their... And they have a right for that subsistence. Yeah. That, in fact, when Alaska parses out fish and game, that's the top, that's number one category. Yep, yep. Subsistence use. And it probably should be. No, for sure. You know, and then, then mean, it goes like, then you got like commercial interest. Sure. And then down, down, you have like non-resident sport hunting. Yeah. So it's a thing they do. And at times, yeah, at times they have like generally, you can't kill a sow with cubs. But if you deem that you have a major issue and you're trying to reduce predation, you might ease restrictions and say that a sow or, or a cub could be killed or you're going to move the season early enough where some bears would still be in hibernation because you're trying to do like a very you know you're trying to do a a, a fairly isolated case of reducing predator numbers yeah so in this in this blowback about 69 they're acting like sort of like someone has said you know what i wish i wish that we would go into refuges and torture all the bears and wolves and kill them right, <laughs> right. and no it's like the last thing they would want to do is actually explain the whole picture right Right. That these management practices are already being implemented on the vast majority of Alaska, which, unlike our own portion of the country, happens to have bears and wolves on 95 or 96 percent of their native range. Yeah, and they have a lot of them. So you're yeah. kind of like you're kind of like taking the people who, and granted, historically they it was kind of handed to them. You're sort of taking like people who are, are doing a phenomenal job with wildlife management. 
Yeah, that's and, the and, ironic and like trying part. to it trying to hamstring them. Yep. Because you have no sort of memory of how things went down in our own area. See, and that's those those folks will be the first ones to to scream science. Oh, we got to follow the science. Blah blah blah. And here you have these state agencies that are living and driving the science every day, but they don't want to buy into their science. It's, all, it's like I said, it depends on whose science you want to... Well, what they attack, though, they generally attack, like, you'll have, let's just take, like, grizzly bear delisting, okay? The people, you know, all the people who are working with the agencies on the grizzly bear problem will come and say, like, you have a sustainable population of grizzly yep. bears, yep. right? You've got enough of them in a big enough area where in 100 years we could still have yep. this many bears in this area. Yep. If you're asking me, have we achieved recovery in this patch of ground? The answer is yes. When, when people go to shut that process down and close the listing, they're not attacking that. They, they sort of pick around the edges to find legal loopholes right. or problems or like in the review process, did you look at uh, X? Yes. Did you look at Y? Right. Not to, to not satisfaction. Okay, we're going to sue you on that. Right. They never, they're not like suing the big picture idea. They're just finding little things where some federal judge is going to come in and go like, okay, yes. Yep. You're right. They got to go back and they didn't dot that I quite effectively. The conversation is never, is this all true or not true? It's right. not the conversation. It's how can we hold this process up through the manipulation of minor details. Right. And that's the process that they played out with the wolves in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. And then they got so mad when the legislation came down and put an end to it. And, uh, you know, they attached that to a continuing resolution in 2010 or 11, which went back and reinstated the 2009 delisting rule, and it said, and it is no longer subject to judicial review, which means they can't go back to court anymore unless Montana or Idaho would to wander off of their uh, management plan. But now Montana and Idaho have lived out the five-year probationary period, and so... Wolves are just wolves now, yep. and they're subject to Montana's management or Idaho's management. And uh, But it makes them so mad when they say, well, yeah, but politics jumped in and delisted the wolf. And uh, Well, you kept overplaying your hand. You wouldn't leave it alone. And that's why finally the politicians got tired of hearing it on both sides of the aisle. And they're like, hey, this is enough of this. It's been in court sued over silly things and 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 it's ridiculous and it's uh you know they're tired of getting phone calls about it and everything else so they just said all right we're gonna we're gonna do this we're gonna go back to the rule that was issued in 2009 and it now becomes law period yeah debates over there's plenty of wolves and they're not threatened but and, like you said there's always a fallback plan if they veer off that management and they, the numbers oh, yeah. get, they get realistic low, again. Yeah, and it's like that's the science. That's the beauty of our process. But that's the funniest thing about the the delisting issues too. That even things that you have like you know in the Upper Great Lakes, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan. Do you think that those people 
are going to go through so much trouble to recover the species and go through the delisting process and turn back to state management just to shoot them all dead again no, and have not, them relisted? It's not going to happen. That's what they just dedicated decades right. to solving that problem. Well, then what that... Why, like, what, what guy in the world would think that that would be a good idea? Well, and what that really tells me, because you're absolutely right, Steve, what that tells me is the end game of the animal rights movement in that case is not their concern about the wolf. It's the end game of they want to keep at uh, hunting and keeping it. Uh, I think they want to continue to chip away at it. The more they can, the happier they are. And it's just what they, the ironic part, like for the, the wolf reintroduction in the Yellowstone area, if elk hadn't been brought back in such a successful way, there would have been no way to bring the wolf back because yeah. there would have been nothing to eat. So they don't understand how they really have to have the sportsman and the hunting side of the aisle for this whole system to sustain. And that's what they don't get, or they don't want to. I don't. I don't know which it is. Some of each, probably. Damn it! <laughs> the rich field of inquiry. Um. Yeah, David Allen. What you got? What, what final thoughts? Yeah, I want one of these jobs like this. This is fun. <laughs> <laughs> um. Your elbows get sore. You, you're, you've been my hero, but now you're really my hero. You're getting paid to do this. This is fun. So, um, well, Thanks for coming on, man. Well, my final thought is I, I just I want to compliment you on how you represent our culture. And, and uh, you're representing it in venues where I wouldn't do so well, but <laughs> where it needs to be represented well. And that's for the sake of my kids, your kids, their kids, those futures. Um, I, I, I appreciate what you bring to the table. I do. It's, uh, um, it's needed. We need that kind of leadership 25 years from now. You'll be here. I probably won't. But well, I appreciate you saying that, but um, no matter how much I do, it's not going to be uh, – it won't be as much as putting a bunch of public land on the ground. Which is what you guys are doing. Well, yeah, and that sure that isn't me. I didn't invent that. And no, no, I, 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 I just I, I, I wouldn't want to. Be, I wouldn't want to suggest yeah, you did, but no. you you happen to be closely involved. I get to be along with an for organization the ride, that, it's that a has a strong ride. track record. Yeah, and and I'm so humbled by our volunteers and our field staff and whatnot that for the things they do and how they do it. Um, it's just really cool to be a part of this whole thing, and I, uh, it's like a second career for me, and I'm just really enjoying it. I am. I'm, I have the greatest job in America, and uh, uh, I wouldn't even give it up to do this. So Good. I don't think you should. <laughs> I hope you don't. I don't want any competition. I have a face for radio, but that's about it. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you, guys.
This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.